What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. And we're in episode, I don't know, somewhere in the 80 or 90 range of the podcast now, so we're not a very uh, new podcast anymore. But for those of you out there just listening, uh, just tuning in for the first time, basically uh, what we do here in the podcast is I introduce, or excuse me, uh, I uh, invite an author on to discuss a, a book of theirs that's been uh, recently published or newly published, uh, something, you know, a book on a topic we think you guys out here out there would like to hear a discussion about. And then uh, hopefully at the end of the podcast or you know, even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go ahead and uh, pick up a copy of the book yourself and give it a read. So yeah, if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Christopher M. Reale. And Dr. Reale is a cultural musicologist who studies popular music by examining the relationships between local music scenes and the national music industry. And does so as assistant professor of music at Ramapo College in beautiful North Jersey up there in uh, Bergen County. Uh, His work has appeared in Southern Cultures, uh, the New Grove Dictionary of American Music, the New Encyclopedia of Southern Culture, uh, the Journal of the Music and Entertainment Industries Educators Association, and the Journal for the Society of American Music. And he is also the author of Music and Mystique in Muscle Shoals, which was published back in July by the University of Illinois Press, and is the uh, book we will be discussing today. So, Dr. Reale, thank you uh, so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here. Thanks so much for the opportunity to talk about my work. No problem. So... Um, so what made you want to write this book? What was the genesis of it? And, uh, or actually before that, really, um, uh, how did you, uh, <laughs> as the kids no longer say, how did you, uh, how did you get hip to, uh, Muscle Shoals and the, and this, and the music scene down there in, uh, Northwestern Alabama? Um, I just, well, I, I, actually, I appreciate that second part of the question because yeah. I, I guess I, I, I've been playing the music that, that some of the music that's been coming out of there for pretty much my entire life. So I'm a, I'm a musician, I'm a guitar player, a singer songwriter as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, going back to bands in high school, we played songs that were recorded in the shows and like in the introduction of the book, I, you know, I was sincere when I said I first learned about Muscle Shoals, like many people did, when they heard Leonard Skinner sing Muscle Shoals about the Swampers um, in Sweet Home Alabama. And so that was one of the songs we played, although that, was not, that song wasn't recorded in, in actually in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so, and then I was like, oh, I'm playing, playing in various bands. And then later on, when I, when I realized that this, that this scene was there, I was like, oh, yeah, that song was recorded there, and that song was recorded there, and oh, that song and that song. Um, I, I played in an R&B and soul band. Um, you know, when I was living in Long Island, uh, years ago and like probably half our repertoire was stuff recorded, you know, between Muscle Shoals and Stacks. Sure, yeah. Um, and, and, the, and then of course you had Motown there too. Um, so that was, so, I mean that, so I guess I had a cultural awareness of, of the scene long before I was, you know, a music historian, although mm. a big part of my teaching 
um, happened before I went to went to graduate school like, was just by reading these things called liner notes, which I know <laughs> I, I, I lament to my students. That's one of the things that you don't get when you're listening to music on streaming. Like you don't get yeah. all the notes and all the, you know. And so I, I was aware of these of the players, the producers, you know, even some of the studios just by reading liner notes. But the project started when I um, went to UNC Chapel Hill to, to do my PhD, and um, the, the first seminar I was in. Um, we were tasked with doing a uh, a, a term paper um, based on archival sources, and the, the professor wanted us to use stuff in the Southern Folklife Collection, which is this massive archive at Ch- in Chapel Hill of all things Southern. So it's music, it's film, it's poetry, it's you know folkways, it's uh, recipes. I mean a- anything, and there's some pretty big collections there. And so I looked into Jerry Wexler's has Jerry Wexler donated. Uh, uh, a very small collection of papers, you know, just basically one box of stuff. And in it was a draft for an article um, that he wrote in and wrote and published in 1969 called What It Is Is Swamp Music Is What It Is. So he was, that's, Wexler was very, very, um, like he was very clever that way. And he was, mm-hmm. he was a former journalism student. And so I, I read this, read this article, read this draft that was basically a typescript on a, Atlantic Records stationery, and then I, it was published in the 70, 75th anniversary of Billboard, um, in like it was December of '69. And so in it, he talks about all these, all these um, artists and uh, scenes and Muscle Shoals was in that. And so I wrote a paper about this, basically this article. Um, and I was like, oh wow, I, I think I discovered my dissertation because doing some research, there's no book, literally no book that's written about Muscle Shoals specifically. There are chapters in some books. Peter Guamas got a got a got a um, a chapter in his Sweet Soul Music, mm. um, and other other authors have chapters about the show scene, but those books are all, most of those books are at least twenty five or thirty years old, and so there was no one book devoted to the history of the show. And most people only write about the classic R and B era, and yeah, that's yeah. which is what Cormac did and Bruce Hoskins and others. Um, and so, and that's kind of what I did too for, the, for my dissertation. And then when I got to the book project, I, it, it, it got expanded. To include the country music scene, which almost nobody talks about ever. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that that was a long answer for how I got into it. Yeah, no, no problem. Yeah, uh, I'm sort of, uh, I guess that probably for most people, um, unless you were part of that scene, you really didn't, uh, uh, you weren't really aware of just how much um, stuff was coming in there. But um, you know, I grew up in, you know, down the Jersey Shore in Monmouth County in uh okay in bradley beach and uh so you know in springsteen territory pretty much you know and of course, uh, yeah. and Southside johnny and all that stuff so um oh, yeah. so you know so i mean my my house is i grew up in you know you walk up the boardwalk a mile and you're at the stone pony or you know if you literally if you hop the fence uh you know from my uh in my backyard and you walk down two blocks it's the the house or the guest house where you know springsteen wrote you know fourth of july asbury park and all sorts of stuff so like my my grade school in belmar uh is uh literally on the corner of e street in belmar <laughs> so i mean but uh <laughs> so i mean like heavily heavily like you know springsteen like ground zero right um sure so but like all the um you know and there's just all those uh bars and clubs and stuff on the beach and uh, especially in Asbury Park in that area. And, uh, you know, and again, you talked about, you know, bar bands and, you know, you know, playing stuff from the R&B stuff, you know, the stack stuff, the Atlantic stuff, uh, you know, yeah, Motown, sure. all that. 
uh, you know, there's really, I mean, I don't know, you know, what the hell's the point of even being in a bar band if you're not playing that kind of stuff. But, um, uh, so, <laughs> you know, Especially in Jersey. yeah, yeah. So like that stuff was always, uh, sort of in the air. And then, um, I remember specifically like the first, uh, I mean, I obviously I didn't know it was a song, uh, you know, recorded in Muscle Shoals, but, uh, you know, that song, uh, I'm your puppet by James and Bobby Purify, uh, which oh, yeah, I sure. heard, yeah. which I heard, uh, I don't know if you remember the show it was on CBS, that, uh, Vietnam show tour of duty, uh, in the oh, late eighties. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. So yeah. they used to, um, I, you know, I first heard that I first heard when a man loves a woman on that show. Um, they played a, you know, a couple, uh, you know, I, I just remember from a kid, uh, hearing those songs on that show. And, you know, sort of fell in love with that stuff. And then the older I got, you know, the more and more uh, I got into, uh, you know, R&B and soul music and that sort of stuff. And yet again, it's just sort of the same thing, just tracking the liner notes and be like, okay, well, um, all right, this song was recorded in Muscle Souls. Like, oh, these guys played on it. And like, oh, these guys played on this too. And then like that sort of thing. And then it sort of right. like gradually uh, dawns on you. I mean, it was a little different with like stacks because like obviously – you know, it's Booker T and the MGs on, you know, practically everything before 1968 and stacks, you know, uh, yeah, but a little different, but so, you know, that's how I, uh, fell in love with it. And then, um, uh, but, yeah, but I th- think again, for like a lot of people too, the uh, documentary that came out in 2013, 2013, 2014, the muscle shoals, uh, right. uh, documentary title movie ever. What's that? I said the worst titled movie ever. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, it kind of finally brought that all together, like you know, sort of crystallized exactly what, um, or you know, the obviously the, the film takes a few liberties, but uh, you know, exactly sort of what happened uh, down there in that uh, in that mid to late '60s, early '70s period. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm rambling now about this stuff, but I mean, I'm sort of like the same way you did uh you know it's not like again like not like motown where like you know <laughs> yeah i mean like everything you know uh motown has that sound uh you know it's it's all on the, with the same record label uh you know what i mean that sort but, of thing yeah yeah um, i mean you know i mean that's one of the you know I, one of the things i point out in the book and like motown was a self-contained unit like they mm-hmm. were the studio musicians they were the songwriters they yep. were Barry gordy owns the thing and they were the label too and, you know, one of the things that made Muscle Souls very different is, and, and, and you know, I, 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 I speak about this in the book, is like, although Rick Hall had a label, right, he had the fame label, mm-hmm. they, were more, they, were, they were more or less, you know, all the, the, you know, the, the two main studios, um, you know, fame and Muscle Souls sound, they were freelance studios. Yeah. And, and although, although MSS, you know, did a lot of contract work with Atlantic because Atlantic lent them the money to open the studio. Sure. Anybody with the money could open the studio. Sorry, anybody with the money could, could rent the studio. And so, so the, the discography of music that comes out of Muscle Shoals is scattered across hundreds of labels mm-hmm. where Motown is like, it's the Motown label, or one, or one of the subsidiaries, which yeah, is yeah. very clearly says Motown somewhere on a Tamil, Motown, whatever, you know. Um, yeah, VIP, and so it's, Soul. It, so it's, know, easy, it's very easy for the public to be like, oh, wow, I had no idea that that song was recorded there because... In the show, it is because oh, because it, 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 you know whatever whatever label it was. So and and so it's it's really it's, and it makes it hard for also a historian to track down 
like, you know, I would never, I, I once thought about like, oh, maybe I'll try to make a discography. I was like, yeah, when I, I was like, it's impossible because there's yeah. too many things and the records are too scattered. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, and it's become something of a, of a, a branding thing now uh, where like if it's not, if it's, uh, you know, people record uh, either in fame or at uh, Muscle Shield Sound and uh, if they don't mention <laughs> the name Muscle Shoals somewhere in the title of the record, uh, it's, you know, it's they they heavily promote it. Like, uh, you know, they want to make sure that you know um, that that album was recorded in the Shoals and um, it works at least for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if, oh, yeah. if, it, I, I mean, if, I, if I find out something was like recorded down there, I'm like, all right, I'm going to listen to this. Like, that's just, you know. Uh, that's just how yeah, it is. Yeah, you know, and you know, even though you know that you know the majority of the of the swampers are dead. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, you know, uh, the fame rhythm section is has into the wind at this point. And yeah, you know, I mean, I you know, that's when I was doing the chapter on the marketing, I was like, let me look at the titles, you know, and I I searched discogs deep, you know, and and looked, and you know, and and it was you know like and there's and there's a lot of a lot of records I didn't even bother talking about because because they're listening like it'd be like. You know, if I record, and a lot of people will go to, you know, anybody can rent fame and they can go down there and record and they'll say, oh, mm-hmm. Chris Reality recorded fame. Like, no one knows who I am, but I, but I would be clearly capitalizing on on the recent celebrity of the region, yeah. um, which is definitely what happened. You know, like the, the Reed Watson quote in the book, I loved it. He was like, it's like a BC, the movie was like a BCAD thing. It was like, oh, yeah. And people realized, oh, we could brand with this. And, like, mm-hmm. and it, it's amazing that, you know, that no one really thought about that. I mean, the people in the industry, in the local industry thought about that. But the, the the rest of the people in the area, the government, you know, the local local government and other other you know whatever affiliates, they could care less about the recording industry. Yeah. Um, and they could and, and and I'm sure Rodney Hall probably argued they still could care less about the industry down there, even though they generated probably at this point billions of dollars of flow flowed through there because of because of those because of, of the eight studios at one time. Yeah, and you know I don't know how many. Um, I mean, it's definitely a way for. Uh, musicians and artists to sort of, uh, I don't know, appropriate's not the right word, but sort of latch on to the idea of, of, of the record or of them being uh, authentic or, uh, you know, a part of a tradition or something like that. And I'm, uh, But I'm not really sure how many other working studios around the world um, can still, I mean, uh, uh, are still sort oh, of yeah. destinations sure. like that, maybe like Abbey Road or like uh, Electric Lady Studios in New York, um, but like actual yeah, working no, I, studios I that you know that that capitalize on on the, they have that the, aura. the cachet. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I I, I I talk I teach a class called I call Pop Music Studies, and we talk about recording studios and scenes and stuff like that, and you know, and I show uh, the footage of U2 playing at Sun Studio, where they're, they're doing mm. Angel from Harlem, and it's, they they shoot it in black and white. Yeah. And and it's like they because they want to be they want to be close to Elvis, yep. and so they go back there and you know, I, I don't actually know if you can actually still record it. So obviously for you too, you can do that. Um, but yeah, so you know, and, and even even you know even Dave Gold's you know documentary Sound City, mm-hmm. like talking about that that one iconic studio that is no more. So you know, musicians are very um, uh, superstitious in some ways, and you know, and so one of the attractions that made one of the things that made Muscle Shoals. Um, more attracted in, in, in their heyday in the, in, in the 60s and up to the 80s was was like oh that because the studio seemed to be cranking out hits so like let's go there maybe it's maybe it's the studio and so now it's musicians going back and wanting a piece 
of like, oh, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I, when you walk in that room, when you walk in Studio A, mm -hmm. and you know, and Fame, you're like, oh yeah, that's that's the Wurlitzer that Spooner played yeah, the opening yeah. to I yeah, Never Love the Man. Like that's that's right there. Like that's it. That's and like you know, and they I know that they just they, they I know um, they recently purchased the, the piano that Aretha played on that session. They, it was you know they got it back. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and Muscle Soul Sound has been refurbished, and they, a lot of the gear is similar to what they had. But I mean, the room was cool. Um, but next, like, and you're like, oh wow, there's a lot of history in this room, and I, and I, you know, and you and you look for that kind of inspiration where you can. Um, and yes, and you're right, there are very few, um, there are very few studios like that that are, that are still standing. Yeah. Um, you know, Abbey Road certainly, you know, you know, you know, maybe maybe the Capitol Capitol Studios out in California, mm -hmm. out, out in LA, but yeah, not that many left. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was up in the area, like right before Christmas time in. Uh... 2019 i had to go to a conference in uh new orleans and i just drove up uh from down here in florida where i live now and uh and after the conference uh you know uh, basically drove up to uh drove up to memphis then over to muscle shoals and uh when i got there um the uh, almond bets band was recording their new album or i guess it's been released by now it was you know three years ago uh but they were recording their album in muscle shoals sound studio <laughs> and uh i i was uh I was uh, there was one of the couple that came in the door like right before the guy was going to give me like the tour and i was like oh this is going to be sweet this is going to be me and it's basically like i'm getting like a private tour of this place and like <laughs> remember like before they got there and before like we went into the studio he was like yeah they're recording the album there and he's like uh so he was like so you know if um don't be alarmed if it smells like weed when we get in the studio. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, that, that's fine. No problem. And, like, you know, they had all the gear. I mean, it was, so it was hard to walk around because, like, all the gear, you know, was still set up. You know, the drums were in there and, uh, you know, all the guitars right. and whatnot. And uh, he was like, oh, uh, you know, like that bass, that was Barry Oakley's bass. That, that's the one, you know, that he played, like, you know, uh, whipping post and stuff on. And he was like, but oh, know, cool. he was right. like, don't touch any of the instruments though. And I was like, yeah, like get the fuck out of here. Like, I'm not going to touch that bass. Of course I'm going to touch that bass, you know, Barry Oakley play whipping <laughs> post on that bass. I'm touching that bass. And, uh, you know, uh, that sort of thing. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it, like I said, they, they're, they're museums in a way, you know, but they're still working oh, no, studios. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, sound is very much sound is very much uh, you know a museum, and um, you know, fame is fame only started doing more public tours pretty recently. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. in the past five or six years. I mean, when I when I first went down there in 2011, um, I spent a month down there to do, to do some archival stuff and interview anybody I could, and you know, I just called fame and I was like, hey, can I come write a book? And you know, I didn't take dissertation because people didn't know what that most people don't know what that means. Yeah, and so. So I, I I I basically got a personal tour, and they weren't really open for tourism. You could call and stop by, mm. and I I wound up interviewing David Hood in in um, one of the studio, in Studio B, um, which is kind of which is cool. And actually, Rodney took, took one of the pictures. Rodney took a picture of us. Yeah. And then at that time, Sound had been purchased by this other guy. The guy the um uh the uh it was the the guy who had um he owned it when that's when that's when um the Black Keys recorded Brothers mm -hmm, recorded mm -hmm, Brothers yeah. there. And there was there was very problematic because there was a lot of misrepresentation of what the studio was and what the gear was, um, and then it shut down and then it, then it got purchased with Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine, you know, and through Beats Foundation, you know, refurbished the studio. So when I when I when I first went to Shoal, when I, started, when I first went to Sound, actually refurbished, um, I think they had just told me that like 
Chris Stapleton had just recorded, like he was he was coming, or he had just come in, or he was about to come in and record, and and that was on his most recent record. They recorded like maybe three tracks there, and it was mm-hmm. at night, like so they were still operating in during the day, but they were like they were blacked out, like they were like shut at four o'clock, and then he would come in and record at night, um, and they recorded maybe two tracks because Dave Cobb, who was in Stapleton's band and the producer and guitar player, he right. like on the board of sound. So, yeah, so yeah, so you can rent it for any any again anybody can rent it. Um, obviously, they 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 they're looking for celebrity clients because they can probably pay more money. Sure. But um, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, we're famous still working. Famous very much a working studio, and 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 sound is still it's a museum first and a studio in the right, studio right, second. Right. right. All right. Uh, well, uh, let's get more into the book. I said so. Um, so music and mystique and muscle shoals. What is uh the muscle shoals mystique and what is the Muscle Shoals sound, or is there uh, an actual uh, Muscle Shoals so sound? So the, the Mystique is this, like, theoretical thing I came up with, uh, and it, and it, I'm quite impressed with how well it's held up, and it sort of, like, still seems to be true. So basically, you know, what happens is, you know, people like Jerry Wexler, who was, you know, from New York and an executive at, at Atlantic Records, they, he and others in the mid sixties sort of look to the South as like the, you know, it's, the South is the home of rock country and the blues. Like that's, that's, there's, that's no disputing that. And so the music that was coming up from the South at the time, so people like James Brown, um, obviously stuff in stacks, uh, you know, I would even count James Brown in there too, you know, in Cincinnati um, and where he's recording a King. And so they, they, they hear these records as being more pure, more authentic. And so, um, and so people like Wexler and others, they go down to the, to the, to the show, the South and Generalist and the shows in particular, and they're like, oh, they hear these session musicians who can make this stuff up as they go. It's like, it's just like unbelievable, right? But that's what musicians do. They create in the spot. That's, head arrangements, that's, that's basically, kind of what, what you're talking about, right? You right. mean head arrangements, right? Yeah, yeah, head, yeah. Yeah, what, yeah. Yeah, what, head arrangements. So like, yeah, it's like, here's the chord progressions, and someone comes up with a lick, and they just go, as opposed yeah. to where in, in places like L.A. or New York, and particularly New York, like people would write stuff out. And it be charted out, and 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 it, and it certainly can sound sterile if it's, if the if, if the if the performances are not are not inspired. And so Wexler goes down there, and and you know he hears these guys do this stuff, like it's a maze. And of course they get a hit record, they get a, they they the face of the first recording they do with you know Wilson Pickett, you know Mustang Sally and others. They they get they're they hear in the charts. So like so if those songs don't hit, I'm sure Wexler's going to move on. Um, but he doesn't. So because the songs hit. And then he starts spinning this myth of like, oh, these guys are amazing. They're they're like they're not trained musicians, and like they can just make stuff up as they go, and it's amazing. It's so different than New York, and 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 that's all true, and that's all true. But then as I dug a little deeper, I found out that Wexler was basically taking advantage of them, and because um, they worked they worked long hours for little pay, and so Wexler got you know a good deal out of it. So and so the myth. Right, so this this like this idea of like musical authenticity, which is basically like this blackness in music, um, for uh, for this in, in, for this type of for this type of songs, um, and like Wexler's able to spin that. And, like, he, he talks about it in Billboard a lot, and he when he interviews Rolling Stone, and and so and then and that just spreads. And so what happens is then this notion of the muscle soul sound um, begins to spread. Um, you know, so you know, uh, obviously the studio names themselves muscle soul sound, but the idea of like a distinguishable sound. So what happens in the late '50s? You know, you get the Bakersfield sound mm. and the Nashville sound, um, and and there's the Motown sound, the Stack sound. And you know, when I looked into all this, there really is no one. Very few of these places actually have any type of sonic signifiers. 
Motown has that the Motown beat, the, the snare drum on all four beats. That's yeah. and use of what would call auxiliary percussion, so tambourines. That's very there's like you can identify a Motown sound, Motown song pretty quickly. But the shows, there's yeah, there's like a formula. Like yeah, you need like 15 musicians to be in the band to make because 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 that's about how many people record on these tunes. And, and Stax had a little bit different thing where you know Stax didn't use that many backup singers, but the shows did. They used backup singers and horn section. But then what happens is the idea of, a, of the muscle soul sound kind of falls apart because once the session musicians leave the, the theme studios and they open their own studio called muscle soul sound, ironically, mm-hmm. then the, the idea of any one sound sort of falls apart because there are different musicians in different spaces, in different physical spaces. But the term muscle soul sound begins to reverberate across, across the industry as this thing. And, you know, people trying to capture like, oh, I want that muscle soul sound, even if, even if I can't really identify it, you know. Sure, there there are some things a lot of the recordings have, especially the R and especially the R and B era. So like basically, like roughly like nineteen sixty two to sixty nine. You know, again, there's a little more low end on the recordings. They're a little more dirtier, so to speak, a little more mud, as as some musicians might call it. Greasier, um, because that, because that's how you mixed R and B songs. But after that, it, it, the you know the as the pop music scene shifts and and both uh, both muscle soul sound and fame start recording more pop artists, the sound changes then. And so, you know, so that that's kind of what happened. So so it's Maybe there for a few years, but then it, 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 then it, just, it just gets, it, like anything, it expands and changes. Yeah, it's uh, funny, too, how um, uh, compared to, to Motown, how uh, Southern Soul specifically, or, or, you know, the stuff, basically the Memphis stuff stacks, and, and then the, uh, you know, the stuff Atlantic was doing uh, and others in Muscle Shoals in the mid-60s, um, how it's seen as more authentically uh black <laughs> in a way that uh uh that Motown uh uh isn't sort of uh you know like when people talk about Southern Soul compared to Northern Soul, you know, Saks and Motown and all that stuff, it's a uh, um you know, a lot of people talk about it's just a um you know, like a blacker sound or um uh, or, or it's, or it's, um, but it's funny considering like, uh, again, you mentioned Motown was basically just a totally in-house operation where pretty much everybody on, uh, everybody involved with, uh, producing the, you know, the records of Motown for the, the songwriter, the songwriting teams, uh, the musicians themselves, the funk brothers, you know, outside of a few, um, you know, a couple white guys here and there, like, you know, Bob Babbitt and Dennis Coffey and uh, Joe Messina, those kind of guys. But uh, the writers are black for the most part. You know, the performers are black, you know, for the most part outside of like, you know, like Chris Clark or somebody like that. Uh, and the musicians are black. The executives are black. <laughs> you know, like Motown is like uh, uh, we're compared to, you know, Stax or uh, what was going on in Muscle Shoals. I mean, Stax, the, you know, Booker T and the MGs, you know, half that rhythm section is white. Uh, half the, you know, uh, the Memphis horns are white. Uh, it's a white executive, uh, you know, uh, you know, Steve Cropper, uh, is involved in writing a lot of the material, uh, that comes out of stacks. Um, you know, he produces the records, uh, many of the records and, you know, the same thing with, uh, uh, you know, down in Muscle Shoals where, you know, uh, Rick Hall's a white guy, uh, obviously, uh, or the first two rhythm sections and, you know, uh, the Swampers are, uh, all white dudes, you know, they, you know, I mean, they just, yeah. I mean, you know, they would, I right. mean, if you were at a, 
if you're at a, a like a golden corral or like a cracker barrel or something in uh like you know northern alabama you'd have no idea that like those guys are you know uh <laughs> you know playing on like land of a thousand dances or anything like that uh, no, exactly. Yeah. So, like, so, uh, but, like, so, yeah. So, this, um, these two areas where the 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 all you know the production and distribution of this music, uh, and the writing of this music is all much more interracial is seeing as more authentically authentically black than what's coming out of Motown when Motown is almost like uh, totally. Uh, you know, totally a black-run enterprise. Yeah, I mean, Motown was was the largest black-owned company in the in the, in the U.S. until yeah. like the, the the 80s or 90s. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, part of that part of that mystique stems back long before recorded sound. Um, other other historians have talked about it, you know, and I, you know, and I stand on their shoulders and, and sort of link what happened in in you know what happened in the shoulders and to fact to some extent as well as well you know, to that to that idea. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, it's like because the singer is black, everyone thinks everyone just there's this assumption. Oh yeah, the rest of the band must be black. And you know, you know, and as, 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 as that one chapter talks about, like you know, that's that's how it was perceived in both the black and white press. So um, you know, and it's like oh, you know, and I mean, you know, Jimmy Johnson told me in an interview, he's like, when our picture first appeared on the back of Aretha's Gold, which is her greatest hits record, he's like, he says something like, he's like, we assume we're gonna stop working because he's like, there we are. Why do you know all our glory? And I, I'll never forget that quote. And he's like. Nothing happened though, because because no one because most people didn't really pay attention to that, mm. and the music was good, so they didn't give they didn't care, you know what who you know people I'm, I'm sure some people cared, but you know but as the song you know as the song circulated in public, it, people tend to forget or don't even know who made the recording. I mean that and that still exists to this day. You know, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't matter. You know, I'm, you know what 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 the the, the racial or ethnic makeup of the, of the person's team is. Like they just yeah. see the singer and go, oh, right, this is so. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, and especially in, in that moment in the, you know, in the late sixties, when Aretha releases respect and that song really becomes, you know, becomes, a, you know, anthemic for, 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 for African-Americans in this country as, as it still is to this day. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, this, this, despite the, despite the mixed racial, racial, the racial origins of, of the songs and the power structures behind the songs. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, let's get a little bit into the, the origin of um, of Muscle Shoals as a uh, as a recording industry hotspot. How did uh, how did the music scene, uh, the recording industry, um, get get in get its start in the Shoals? Um. Yeah. It's you know, like like many other places, it's completely haphazard. So the 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 father of the scene is this guy, is this guy James Joyner, whose mm-hmm. family owned a bus company, and he was an aspiring songwriter, and he wrote a song um, called Fallen Star in like 1955, 56, and he hires a uh, high school singer, high school student, to um, to record it. And so, and there's no there's no recording studios apparently in all of Alabama. So he goes to the, like many like many things happen. He goes to the to the radio station because they've got recording gear. They record a song in between while the DJ the DJ plays one song in the air, runs into the room, hits the tape. You know, engineers recording. They do it live and it becomes like a regional hit. And you know, Joyner eventually you know later on reflects in like in like an article in in Cashbox in the 70s. He's like he's like I didn't expect this to become a scene. 
I just figured there's a way people would stop off here on the way to on the way to Nashville. Mm-hmm. And so, but but the the this little tiny scene attracts Rick Hall um, and Billy Sherrill, who go, both go on to be ginormous careers. And and so yeah. you know they Hall and Sherrill and some other people form fame uh, for Lawrence Alabama for Lawrence Alabama Music Enterprises, and they and they're looking at publishing because publishing is where the money is. That's that's how you make money in the industry is you own the song or write and own the song. And so the Hall's difficult to work with. They basically send him on his way. He buys the name of fame and he starts his own studio. And he, you know, looking for anything to do, you know, he's, he's, he's working in bar bands, um, the, um, a group called the Fairlanes. And then, you know, and then um, Arthur Alexander sort of stumbles into this scene. This, these guys have this little half, this half-ass studio that above a drugstore because there's, and Arthur Alexander comes in and he's, he's already been in the group and he's already had a, written a couple songs and they like his music. And so there's even right Arthur Alexander's black. Everyone, everyone in the scene is white. So there's definitely some racial things going on. Like it's some admiration props, you know, I, who knows? And and so they go in and record. Um, you better move on. And and so and they work on it for like what sounds like basically six months to record one song. And Hall shops it around and it gets placed and it gets it, it makes it about to 25 on the R&B charts and Billboard and that's a huge success. And then Hall Hall owns some of the song, and he gets paid a pretty decent amount of money, and he builds a studio, and then that's where it starts. Um, so Journey was definitely the guy that started the whole thing. Hall gets all the credit because he's he's the more flamboyant, for lack of a better term, you know, person. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then and then and then and, and then you know if if the because Arthur Alexander was black, and the songs R and B. R&B artists begin to go to the shows. Had it been a country song, it would have been a country scene. I, 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 I'm almost, I would almost guarantee, I would guarantee that that's how it would have went. Mm-hmm. But so other R&B artists and other R&B labels start to, you know, who don't own studios, labels in all studios, start going to shows and start taking advantage of, uh, sorry, not, taking, not, not in a bad way, but they start using, utilizing the talents of the, of the in-house session musicians. And, and, and because of the proximity to Nashville, um, you know, that's, that's part of it. You know, you know, you know, and one of the things that I, that I uncovered while doing research was that there was already this really close connection between some of the musicians in the shows pre, that predate James Joyner and and Nashville. So there was already like there was already like a network of people yeah. who had had worked in the shows, um, primarily these, these country bluegrass musicians who moved to Nashville. And so they had they had these connections, and that certainly helped strengthen the ties that Joyner had, and also eventually yeah. Um, uh, that Nashville that Nashville is the model, right? Like that's when when they're envisioning course, what yeah. they want to do. Like they yeah. they want to they want to do it the way Nashville does it. Like that's you know how does Nashville do it? That's how we're going to do it, sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I mean, it, it is literally it, at that point, it's 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 only two and a half hours away. So like, yeah. it's not, I mean, New York is New York is a fifteen-hour drive, and New York is a monstrous scene. Nashville and Nashville in the fifties was a very small operation. Maybe maybe a couple a couple of few studios. Yeah, RCA that, Studio and, B and, and couple couple yeah, others. Yeah, I think, yeah. yeah you know, and, and Buddy Killen, who grew up in the Shoals, works for Hank. He, he becomes Hank Williams' bass player, bass player, and he works for Tree Publishing. This is one of the large, still one of this day, one of the largest publishing companies in the world. Yeah. And so they've got like, oh, it's kind of the good old boy network. Oh, like, oh, buddy, I know, buddy. This, this, I mean, like, and so Hall publishes some songs with, through, through Tree Publishing. Junior publishes some songs through Tree Publishing. So, I mean, it is, it is, you know, you know, you know, one of the things I point out in the book, like, you know, there was, there was, I have this chart like that shows all the things that were happening related to show musicians before Arthur Alexander shows up, and there was a ton of things mm-hmm. happening. A lot of songs being written, published. You know, I mean, there were some recordings. I mean, some, some people who are, you know, has been or never was. 
But there was there was some stuff happening. And Hall Hall got really lucky, and he, I mean, he and he was incredibly talented. Listen, I'm yeah, be yeah. very clear about that. Um, but you know, but there's but there's talent is not necessarily what what makes you in the industry. It's luck. It's oh sure, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's you mentioned the the sort of um, happy accident of Arthur Alexander, and if not for for him, how you know R and B probably doesn't get you know a, much of a foothold there. Um, you know, but it's also yeah. another same thing. Like, uh, you know, uh, maybe it, um, you know, uh, Atlantic basically Atlantic records screws stacks out of its, uh, back catalog in like 1967 right. or 68. So, uh, you know, uh, all of a sudden Atlantic records, um, personnel or persona non grata at stacks. Um, so Jerry Wexler has to find a, you know, someplace else to record all these uh you know musicians and uh artists and stuff and uh sort of you know pushes them all uh or a lot of them to um uh, uh you know to uh uh to muscle shoals you know so maybe if you know yeah, that if, if, if on the road just, you know, yeah. yeah yeah i mean if, if you know if, if that doesn't happen that 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 split between or that rift between stacks and atlantic Maybe Aretha Franklin never goes to, you know, uh, maybe she goes to Memphis instead of going to Muscle Shoals and, uh, right. you know, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, it's just uh, funny how, like, again, this sort of these things are just sort of, it's uh, uncontrollable in a way, you know, just uh, uh, fate, <laughs> you know. Yeah, 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 you know, uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly fate is part of it, you know, but, you know, you know I mean, you know, Wexler is basically the... You know, like he's like the the shadow. He's not sorry. He's not a shadow turkey. He's very central to the book. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, I mean, like you know, the the I, I don't think you know. I I think I I I, I give like one or two sentences. Like, oh, he had a dispute with Jim Stewart, who owns half your own stacks. Yeah. And then, but like, that's a huge thing, right? Yeah. And, and again, it's always about money. And 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 one of the reasons that 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 Wexler cuts the muscle cell sound loose is because it was about money. Because they 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 I, I, you know when. The, there was some pushback from the from the when the shows when muscles the musicians who owned muscle sound that they, they gave some pushback atlantic pull atlantic says oh you know what you owe us all the money right now and like they they, they called in their note and then boom and like atlantic picks up and they moved to miami so yeah. because 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 boy because we actually wants to wants to retire to miami and he wants all the musicians to go to miami they're like we we live here and so he's like all right then he, he's like so it's all it's like i love you but it's business and yeah. then bam and so you know, so it's so some interesting happen and interesting things happen, and, and those stories aren't necessarily widely known. Um, you know, and and yeah, some of it some of it is fate, but a lot of it is you know, it's like it is it, the music industry is a business. Sure, absolutely. Um, uh, I guess uh, again, starting um, the start of this whole thing, but uh, so in the late fifties, early sixties, mid sixties, what um, what were uh race relations like in uh, the Shoals area? I mean, for people um, sort of not familiar uh, with the area, it's in northwest Alabama, uh, the area called the Shoals around there. Uh, it's uh, on the Tennessee River. Uh, there's four different towns, Tuscumbia, Sheffield, uh, Muscle Shoals itself, and Florence, which is the uh, where the University of North Alabama is um, located. And it's a, uh, I'm pretty sure it's a dry area outside of Florence. Well, I know I've had. Yeah, it's a dry county, yeah. Yeah, yeah I've had, dry, I've, Florence, I've drank in Florence. Yeah, Florence so I know. Is in Col- yeah, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, the city, the city is, the city is not, is not dry, but the, the county is. Right. 
Um, and it's like, so, and, and yeah. it's a, it's not on a, uh, the area is not on a, an interstate. Uh, no. You know, it's, it's very out of the way. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's very much out of the way, the, yeah. t- very out of the yeah. way and tucked into this, you know, this Northwest Alabama, uh, uh, corner there. Yeah. I mean, when, when I give talks, I often, you know, I often mention, um, the Wilson Dam because people have heard of that in TVA and also Helen Keller is like, mm-hmm. Oh, and like, and cause they don't, they don't nothing know what muscle chills are, but they've heard of Helen Keller and maybe the Wilson Dam. So the reason, you know, so, you know, uh, it's Alabama in the fifties and sixties. So, there's that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I asked that question a lot to people when I was last down there in research about 2019. And it, it was bad. It was not Birmingham. It was not Selma. But everything was segregated. Mm-hmm. Uh, be very clear about that. You know, there's a, a quote from, uh, I'm forgetting his name in the book. He's like, I'm not going to downplay the fact that everything was segregated and things were bad for for many, for many black, for many black families, the one significant difference is that because the region didn't really rely on King Cotton, there were not as many, there were not as many slaves in that area mm-hmm. you know, preceding the and up to the Civil War, and um, so that that's that was that was that was one reason why it's maybe not wasn't as bad because it didn't rely on chattel slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, the you know, uh, Tori Bailey told me, you know, I can quote in the book, she's like, things weren't so bad here because there were, there were a lot of jobs. So, you know, there was, there were jobs for the TVA, there were jobs at Brown's Ferry, um, a n- nuclear plant. And so she, they, she said something like, you know, people weren't so pissed off because black people weren't taking white people's jobs. So, yeah. and, you know, and, and, you know, and as I, as I did some more research, you know, there was a very large, um, uh, Jewish population in the Shoals, and so Billy Warren, who was at the time when I spoke to him, he was a city, the city historian for Florence. Like he's like, I don't know that. I think that explains a little bit of why the area, area was more tolerant. And you know, I'm very careful in the book. It was not, it was not progressive. No, no. one used that term. It's, it was more tolerant. Um, you know, it, that's a hard question to ask people. You know, like, hey, hey, random person of color what was it like for you and your family you know i i i, I, I can't ask a question because it's it, 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 you know as an outsider it's a very very difficult thing to ask that so but but from, from all the research i've done it seemed like it wasn't that bad compared to other places in alabama doesn't mean it's Again, great segregated. <laughs> yeah, yeah it doesn't mean yeah it doesn't yeah, yeah, yeah it, right. which is great but it, it was it was you still i mean still a second second or third class citizen if you were a person of color sure down there so you know and you know and you know charles hughes's book you know, country sold really digs into some of that. Oh yeah, yeah, everything. And 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 and, 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 and talks about that in his chapter of multiple souls. Like, it was not equal. Even in the studio, it was not equal. There was definitely an us and them thing. Um, it was better. You know, uh, and, and you know, and, and you know, and I, 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 I hopefully I'm, I, I'm eloquent enough in the, in the and when I speak about the race relations in the shoals, think I don't know. There's no way to quantify this. I can just I can offer some evidence and say this is why maybe it was more tolerant. But I, there's I, it's impossible. To really know without interviewing every person who was alive at the time, which of course is obviously possible. So you know, so I just try to offer up some some of, some of the things. But yeah, but there's also plenty of evidence that it was things were really shitty in some places too. Yeah, um, I actually I just watched the. Uh, have you seen the the new um, the new Aretha Franklin uh, the movie, the one with uh, Jennifer Hudson? Uh, I have not. Don't no, tell anybody. Don't, uh, don't tell I, anybody. But I have not. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it's it's on 
what channel? Was it on HBO Max? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Or, I, I, it's been out for a while. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. So I finally watched it, and uh, over the weekend, and uh, you know, the, of course, they uh, well, they they get a few things wrong about the uh, you know her uh, the stuff with Muscle Shoals, but they you know obviously it's a prominent part of the film of her going down there and you know doing basically the one day session uh, before right. before the shit hits the fan. Uh, with the right. uh, um, uh, the, with Ken uh, Lockton, yeah. the horn the horn player who uh, well it's all sort of shrouded in mystery and it's hard to um, in the movie they have it where basically he gets a little bit too familiar with Aretha puts his I mean puts like his arm around her and uh, this yeah, pisses, this I pisses mean, off Ted no White to t- yeah this pisses off Ted in yeah, the film I mean, it says like this pisses off Ted White. And he flies off the handle, and uh, later on they leave. And then in the movie, where I've heard it, where I've heard it in the past is uh, not from the movies that Jerry Wexler and Rick Hall go to like the hotel, and then there's a verbal argument between. Uh, yeah, they come to blows. Actually. Basically, the, yeah, 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 something like that. In the movie, it's just Rick Hall himself, and he goes to, he basically goes to apologize. Uh, to Aretha, he says he's fired the horn player. Uh, blah 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 blah. Not gonna be a problem. And then Ted White, uh, Aretha's husband at the time, uh, just like really lays into him with like all like the peckerwood and like honky, like cracker stuff, and uh, eventually goads uh, Rick Hall into calling him the N word, and then it starts into this big you know uh, <laughs> fist fight in the room, yeah. but like Jerry Wexler's not present. It's just like those two and Aretha. And, uh, uh but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, even in, in Aretha's biography, she says, she talks about like that, that her husband's white storms off yeah, and she doesn't know what happened to him. And, and she goes to the airport the next morning without him. And he's already there. And she's like, he was going to leave me there. Like yeah. she was pissed. She was like, because I think things were on the, I mean, it seems like things were on the rocks between those two. But yeah, he, but white had already, was already at the airport waiting yeah, I, I, you know, there was drinking involved, um, you know, Wexer more or less fired Hall. Yeah. Like, and this, these are accounts that people told me, you know, on and off the record. And, you know, and, and then, you know, as Wexer said in, in his autobiography, I think I mentioned this in the book, but Wexer was like, we knew she was happy with the musicians. Yeah. It was, but so it was, it was just that scene was not, was not happening. And, you know, and then that's why, that, and then Wexler basically brings, you know, secretly brings the musicians to New York. You know, on, uh, on, under the roof of another, one of another project, and then like has them record the other, record the finished session. And Paul was pissed. Yeah, he's like, "You're trying to steal my musicians." So, so which he does. I mean, blood. I mean, he, he I mean, he bankrolls yeah. the studio for him or Muscle Show Sound, and he yeah, does kind yeah, of steal it, them. It, it, takes couple, <laughs> it takes a couple of years. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, but like, yeah, you know, but but again, you know, it, it is again, it's, it's all about money. Like they're they're producing hit records, which which is making money for clearly for Atlantic Records. You know, I'm not, you know, not many of the songs that are with records are not written by theme songwriters are written by others so i mean so you know hall is making money on, on the studio rental mm-hmm. for sure and he's probably getting some i'm gonna guess he's probably he's probably got some points on the records um oh, for sure. being an engineer so he's making money um but yeah but, but again it, it, even if they're not happy with each other there's definitely that it, it, it's working it's like hey we're making money we'll, we'll put aside our differences because we can make we can make we're, we're actually doing pretty well here actually uh sure. why don't we uh get into that uh if you can um just sort of explain to people like how um especially when you're like a uh a, a little uh, operation like this and in, in the in the 
60s, there's a ton of, you know, independent record labels. Well, I mean, Motown's an independent record label, so is Atlantic. Sure. Um, all those things. But um, for a studio, uh, for a little independent label, uh, even for, you know, even for an Atlantic record, something like that, what, uh, how big of a deal is it and how much money is there to be made off uh, a hit record, you know, a hit record that goes, you know, uh, that that not only gets to say like you know the top ten or top twenty in the on the R and B charts or the country charts, but um, you know that goes into the you know goes into the top twenty, goes into the top ten on the uh, you know the main national you know Billboard Hot 100 charts. Sure, the Hot 100. Yeah. Yeah. So you know it comes down to copyright, and so on the sound recording there are essentially two copyrights. There are two copyrights. There's a copyright for the recording itself, which is called the recording, and then there's um, a copyright for the musical work, which is basically the composition, the song. And so the label will typically own all or a significant portion of the recording. And so in exchange for that, the, the person who records the song, the, the artist, will get a royalty. And if you are also, then if you are the label and you also have, you, you, it's a, a song, the song was written by someone who works for your company and your publishing company, which is separate, which is a separate company than that record label. Um, then the, the publishing company and the writer also make money. And so if you have a staff songwriter, as Bacall did, as, as, as I'm, not, I'm not sure Atlantic had staff songwriters, um, but they, they, but they, de- but they definitely owned a piece of the publishing. And I can talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. So they're making money. The label can make money on both the sale of the record and, and the song itself. And so if a, if a song goes to number one, you can more or less, it's like almost a license to print money. Yeah. So the, the case in point is when later, you know, in the, in the 90s when Gary Baker um, co-writes I Swear for John Michael Montgomery, a song that goes number one for John Michael Montgomery, John Michael Montgomery, as a country number one, and also there's a, a boy band that recorded, and so it's on the charts for, I don't know, a long ass time. It sells 20 million copies, and Fame owned the publishing to that, and so that song probably bankrolled Fame probably for another 30 years alone. So wow. that's how. So that's why it's important. I mentioned earlier when if you are the songwriter and you own you own as much publishing as possible, um, or own as much portion of the publishing as possible, um, that uh, you retain those rights, and then you can make money coming and going. Uh, and so late, late, so, so Hall, that's, so Hall basically gets into the recording industry. He's like, I, I became a recording engineer because I need to make demos for my songs. I was a songwriter and I need to get the demos done so I can pitch the songs to, 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 to publishers in, in Nashville. And so that's how I got into recording mm-hmm. because he knew that being a, being a publisher was where the money was at. And that's pretty much still what, what fame is known for is, is although, although the recordings they've had, they own it. They, they've owned several maps. They've, they've bought well they've sold several portions of their catalogs and so so going back in the 60s so atlantic's making a lot of money you know aretha's you know she's the number one artist for r&b for about seven or eight years mm. you know she tops all these polls she wins all these grammy awards and that's all this record sales that's all record sales and so they're making money on that as well and 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 i know that that when um atlantic was bankrolling muscle soul sound they um Muscle Soul Sound had to give a portion of the publishing to Atlantic Records. So not only did Muscle Soul Sound have to pay back Atlantic Records for the loan that, they, that Atlantic gave the studio to open the studio, they were paying them back by giving them publishing credits um, on the songs that, that, that songwriters for the studio wrote 
and that got onto albums. And so Atlantic, as David had told me, Atlantic was making the money and coming and going. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, well, it's a sleazy business, boys and girls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, it's uh, sleazy business. Yeah. So, um, for the people out there who have seen the documentary Muscle Shoals, you know, it gets, uh, um, it spends a lot of time on, uh, you know, the formation of the, uh, industry there and the, with the R&B stuff in the sixties with, you know, Wilson Pickett and Aretha and, and Etta James and, you know, uh, Clarence Carter and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, it, it goes a little bit into the, uh, into the seventies with the, the sort of the success that, uh, um, you know, Rick Hall's going to have with uh, the stuff in CBS, including the Osmonds. <laughs> the Osmonds, I, uh, Muscle Shoals. That might be the most quintessential Muscle Shoals song there is. One Bad Apple. One Bad Apple, song. yeah. Yeah, it is a great song. Yeah, and uh, same guy, um, uh, which is in George Jackson, the same guy who wrote uh, Old Time Rock and Roll. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, so, and then it gets into, you know, um, Muscle Shoals Sound Studio, The Swampers on their own. Uh, you know, with the you know, the session with the Stones, with you know, famously from you know, uh, you know, Brown Sugar and Wild Horses, yeah. and uh, you got to move, and uh, you know, Paul Simon and uh, Jimmy Cliff and Traffic and the Staple Singers and etc. Uh, but it it virtually or it completely ignores um how Muscle Shoals, how uh that area is going to change the sound of country music in the mid to late seventies and, uh, in the, uh, early mid eighties. Can you talk, uh, talk about the, it's, uh, Muscle Shoals' impact on, on country music in that period? Yeah. So I, I, I you know, as you, as your introduction there, Brett points out like that's nobody wants to talk about that story because yeah. it's not cool, I guess. So beginning, you know, I, there are changes in the early, early, early seventies, you know, country music is moving away from, being primarily identified with, you know, pedal steel and banjos and fiddles. I mean, I've been doing that for too. And and so they're, they're looking to move more more to the mainstream. And so there's, you know, they space what we what we call crossover artists. And so, you know, Music Mill Studios gets this idea of like, hey, we're in Muscle Shoals. We can we can what if you got some country musicians to come here and we use these musicians, the, these studio musicians who are really gifted at making pop records, because that's because R and B was pop. And then uh, Paul Simon, the, the they were all pop records. Mm. And so, what if we infuse these country these country artists with some pop? And and so, you know, Hank Williams goes there, and as do many others. And as the studio scene sort of, as the studio scene in the show sort of peters out because it's you know they're they're more they're, it's more competitive. Um, more bands are using their own musicians as opposed to hiring studio musicians. You know, especially in the pop world. Mm-hmm opened up a space for, for the show scene to move into country. And they do that through, you know, recording, you know, Shenandoah, of course, comes out of, comes out of fame, you know, Alabama, Oak Ridge Boys recorded fame. Um, but they do that, but the show is really influences the sound of country music, primarily through songwriting. And so you get, you know, numerous songwriters who were signed to publishing deals with fame, particularly, um, or to one of the fame publishing companies, they start cranking out these number one songs for Nashville, which is, you know, literally right down the road. And that sustains the Shoals industry for a long time because, you know, one, you know, as Rodney Hall said to me in, in an email, it's like, you know, the studio rental is fine. It's maybe 500 bucks, a thousand dollars a day. You get one hit song and that can put, that can last years yeah. because the money just, because it just, because it can generate so much revenue. And so, and then, 
what happens eventually in the late 80s is when Barry Beckett, who was the keyboard player for the Swampers, decides he's tired of playing keyboard and he wants to produce more because at that point he'd been working as a, as a sort of a co-producer, an, an unofficial co-producer with Wexler on Dylan Records and Dire Straits Records and whatever. He moves to Nashville and then he becomes one of the number one producer in the mid-90s of in country music and because he brings, again, bringing that R&B pop aesthetic to Nashville and and completely, you know, changes or help he's among other he and others help change the sound of country to move it to more pop sound again you know if you're a country traditionalist you might hate that stuff but you know the labels don't care because the labels they, they want hits and as you know as many people in the industry will say you're only as good as your last hit and so if that if, the, if your last hit was a pop tune and that's what the sound is then that's what they want for the next one too and so and so and and much of that history that i talk about in, the, in that chapter called i swear mm. was has Although it's literally littered across the pages of Billboard and Cashbox in the in the late seventies and eighties, no one just no one's talking about that because a lot of the artists they're not like these iconic uh, artists. Although I mean, there's some big names, Ronnie Millsap. You know, there's some big people involved in that work that works with people in the shoals. Um, but they're all these artists that, that like they they lean a little more pop than country, and so the country people, country aficionados, and country country music historians kind of they kind of poo poo towards those. those and it's mostly guys. Yeah, yeah, the show was really influential in that scene. Yeah, and it, and it, and in 1994, the, the two the two biggest songs in country music were produced through through guys in the show. So you have you have the I swear by John Michael Montgomery and Wink, um, which was produced by by Barry Beckett. The two biggest songs in 1994 had very close muscle souls connections. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, take us down to the present day. What's the um, what does uh, muscle souls look like? Uh, What's the scene down there now in the present? What is uh, um, uh, what does it look like now? How did uh, um, what um, has there been a transition away from uh, from country uh, from that sort of uh, more cosmopolitan country, I guess, uh, pop country of no, uh, the eighties? You know, and... There's there's still like a very big writer scene in the shoals, mm-hmm. and like and that was cultivated, you know, in the you know in the in this in the seventies, you know, Ava Aldridge, um, uh, you know, started having these songwriting circles, and they still exist. There's now uh, there's now the Muscle Shoals Songwriting, I forget what it's called, the Songwriting Festival, mm-hmm. and so where they showcase a lot of writers um, in the shoals. So it's it's really moved more into a, into a songwriting scene. Although fame still you know fame is still open as we mentioned, and mm-hmm. as is sound, um, and uh, you know. I don't know as, as many. It's it's kind of hard to track what records are recorded there unless they unless the artists themselves say, "Hey, I recorded." And as you mentioned, a lot of many people are doing that. But you know, I'm friends on social media with several several of, of the session musicians, and so they will occasionally post, like, "Oh yeah, we did the session for this person." And so there's there's a lot of like up and coming acts that will still go, that go to fame. You know, mm-hmm. and, and as I mentioned, you know, what's basically sustains fame is is their publishing catalog. You know, the the the, the recording rentals are are you know again. Expensive, but but it's not outrageous. And there's even there's actually even a there was, I remember reading there's now an initiative that um, some through some grant I'm not sure if it's a Shoals based grant or which one of the counties like they will actually even, if you want to come to the Shoals to record they actually underwrite the recording because they want people to come back and start recording there. But you know but since but since the movie came out in 2014 there's been a, a lot more awareness of the scene and so it, it has really bolstered the tourism. Uh, in the in the in the region, and so Fame offers tours. I think now they're now well, when I went there, my tours it was free. Now I got to pay. You have to pay like fifteen bucks to go take a tour of of sound. 
Um, and, and some other studios are, are kind of doing the same thing. Um, so, you know, it's still there. Um, it's nowhere near as vibrant as it was, and, and they're, they're much more embracing their historical past in a way that they never have previously. Mm-hmm. And I, again, much of that is because of, because of the, 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 the attention that the film, uh, the, the film shined, shined a, a very bright light on, on the scene, but, and because people in the area just had no idea that this, thing, this stuff even existed. So now they're, as Judy had told me, like there are people, there are locals who are embracing this a little more than they probably should. Because <laughs> they were like, yeah. like, they want to own it, you know, it was like, I mean, when, in my, my first couple tips there, people had no idea what I was there. Like, what? There's a recording scene here? And now... Yeah, it was very left. siloed oh, off yeah, from like the rest them. of the, uh, you know, community. I mean, for, <laughs> for uh, obviously for good reasons. I mean, especially if you have a lot of, you know, famous uh, musicians, um, you know, coming to town, you know, want the privacy and whatnot. And also just because, you know, uh, musicians... <laughs> Uh, tend to have uh, musicians from out of town tend to have a different. Uh, 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 they band, live different. bandwidth, yeah, live different world than uh, the people who you know are uh, born and raised in a very <laughs> yeah in a very in a very quasi rural conservative t- yeah. place in the sixties and seventies. I mean, David said that he's like he's like we didn't advertise. He's like he's like something like I think it's in the book. He's like we had people had very different lifestyles. Like we were not advertising who so. And each each student had basically had they bought a house. And so when you came to the show, you you actually they put you up in a house, and that was part of the packaging. You know, like they told me Bob Dylan the first time he came to sound, like he drove himself across the country in a in a in a, in a VW microbus, and he lived at their he lived at their at the house they owned. You know. Yeah, yeah, and, like and, uh, and, and, and yeah, I think I remember uh, someone telling me that uh, like when Traffic was was there recording, um, you know, like. Uh, like David Hood's mom, you just used to like stop by the studio and just like drop off like biscuits and stuff because like Steve Winwood, yeah, would love to, I mean, you know, you know they, they, yeah, yeah, you know they, you know there there were stories I heard too. Like I, I can't remember it was musicians like like you know Liza Minnelli, Liza Minnelli recorded there, and now that's never been released. But like they're like oh she was in, went to the grocery store because like no one like no one expected to see Liza Minnelli in a grocery store in Alabama. It's like yeah. they're like oh was that her? Like I don't know. Like what is she like? Oh, like what is she doing? And I was like, well, because she's recording. But again, people had no idea. I mean, you drive by Fame now, like you know, you look at the pictures of Fame. Like it, you know, it's right now it's, it's next to a CVS. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it doesn't. You know, and 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 sound is kind of in the kind of on the back road. You like like it's you know it's like they don't expect it. And you know, back then it's like it was very they're very un, unauspicious buildings as most studios are. Like you have no idea. Like that's yeah, I mean that's recording studio. When I when, that's what when I was thinking when I went up there uh on my visit back in 2019 i was uh, you know just when i was at in the parking lot at fame i was just sort of looking around just being like this place probably looked completely different you know 50 years ago <laughs> there's probably nothing yeah not, i'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not just looking that. around like nothing like around here i don't even know if like that that uh you know that holiday inn that's uh sort of famously featured in uh yeah the, they, the yeah. gimme shelter yeah, documentary where the stones played i don't even know if yeah. that's even there anymore no, yeah, that's that's gone. Like, like there's there's a plaque. And, I mean, so even even that, like, you know, so when I was first there in 2011, there was like there was like a historical plaque at the at the unfortunately the wrong site of where fame, what 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 the, what the drugstore was. Mm-hmm. And then um and then now there are plaques everywhere. So there's there's a plaque at where the where the Holiday Inn was. There's a plaque where Queen Ivy Studio is mm-hmm. was. Um and, and the, so there's other plaques because because they they fully embraced. And I think like in part of that is definitely definitely positive fallout from from the from the documentary yeah i was gonna say i don't like off the top of my head i don't know i don't know uh how many other documentaries have had such a um 
an economic impact on on a uh, at least in like the last uh, you know 10 20 years something like that on an area like that one has had on you know on the shoals yeah that that, that you know that's that's a very good point because you know like a documentary about a studio like you know Grohl's documentary about sound city is like it's LA yeah. LA's got other things people go to for. But yeah, I mean, so here's, you know, and even Memphis, like, even a documentary about Sun Studio, which are already legendary, but like Memphis has other things that are going to attract you. Like, yeah, this is, this is a region that's really small and it's basically known for bass fishing. I mean, that's, that's what the rivers probably, that, that's what, I mean, they had these massive bass fishing mm-hmm. tournaments because the rivers, you know, is, 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 is awesome and Helen Keller, but I, I don't know, I don't know how much business Helen Keller brings in. Um, and yeah, and so yeah, it, it had, it had a humongous economic impact. On that, you know, and so, and so much so that they, you know, they that the Florence Lauderdale tour, tourism, and you know, they hired they hired a consultant to come in, like how can we capitalize on this stuff? And so they did the sound, they did what's called the, there's a there was a sound city, which is different from the from the, doc, the, the documentary, like right. they could they basically produce this report. I, I, that's one of the that's like the coda of my book. They talk about that. So mm. you know, and you know, and I, I know that the, the the people down in the shows were very psyched about my book. Because like, because they hadn't, there was no, there was basically no story. To, there was no, there was no, there's no book that that tells this story. And not that it tells it in its entirety, but there's no, you know, there's nothing that there's nothing like, oh yeah, here's you want to learn more. Here's a here's a here's a pamphlet. Here's the book. So yeah, you no, know, Carolyn Crawford was very excited about that. Ah, great. The, head, cool. the, the heritage area was very excited about the book. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, all right. Well, yeah. I've already kept you over an hour. Uh, a couple of things I want oh, to talk okay. about, but I, I very much enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, so um, uh, I guess I'll just uh, I'll end it by uh, asking you the uh, question I ask everybody that uh, comes on the podcast, and uh, that is, uh, you know, what would you like the audience to uh, to get out of this book, or what's the uh, well, you know what's the one thing you'd want them to take away from from having read it? Ah, uh, that's nothing. No one's ever asked me that question. Um, you know, it's a, it's a story of determination and kind of like, you know, I'll, I'll kick it back to one of my, one of my people I interviewed, like, you know, Reed Watson at, at, in the, in, uh, who works for a label in the shoals called single lock. He's like the story about this region is like, screw it. No one said we couldn't do this. So we're going to do it. Mm. And, or no one's, you know, because they just, they said they had no idea that they shouldn't be able to do this kind of thing. And they did it anyway. And you know, um, so, you know, this group of guys, and it's unfortunately almost all guys, um, you know, a, a lot of different people, they, they're just like, sure, we could do that. And they build this, they help build this massive empire that has significantly influenced not only U.S. culture, but culture across, you know, musical culture across the globe. Yeah. Um, and, they, and they built this legacy that's going to hopefully live for a very long time. So um, it, is, it is very much, a, uh, you know, an American story but about determination and and just like yeah we could do that sure all right cool okay uh well again uh the book is music and mystique in muscle shoals um highly highly recommend this to everybody out there um even if you're not a uh, gigantic um soul music nut like i am uh, but it's a uh, a fascinating story about a region that um uh, probably uh, more so than any other region in America has uh, punched above its weight class uh, musically. Yeah, uh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a really cool little story. Um, you know, just a, 
you know, revealing all these people and places and uh, events there that, uh, you know, put uh, put this region on the map and uh, has meant, uh, you know, uh, so much to uh, American musical history. So highly, highly recommend it uh, out there. Again, Music and Mystique in Muscle Shoals, the author, uh, Dr. Christopher Reale. Uh, Dr. Reale, thank you uh, very, very much again for oh, coming so on the podcast. The I very much appreciate uh, it. No problem. Yeah. All right. And again, if you like this podcast, please uh, leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And if you uh, you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's uh, T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. Uh, and for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, uh, we do also have our uh, Twitter account for the – uh, for this podcast, um, what the hell is our handle? Yeah, uh, at illbooks, at ILL Books. You can uh, check us out there. Uh, you know, uh, give us a follow, send us a DM if you have any questions or comments or whatnot. Uh, uh, look out for us there. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye bye. Easy.